Well, the scripture this morning, before Pastor Steve comes to, uh, to bring the sermon, is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And if you have your uh, study notes there out of your worship folder, those, that scripture is right there on the top. You can follow along as I read. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged? If his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore... If food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Well, let's bow together and uh, ask God to speak to us through his word this morning, okay? Our Father, we thank you for your word. It is good, and it is strong, and at times it's a hammer, and at times it's a fire, at times it's food to our souls. And we pray today, Lord, as we look at 1 Corinthians 8, that you would talk to us and that our hearts would be open to what you have to say, even on a subject, Lord, that seems kind of remote to us here in the 21st century. So um, we give you free reign in Christ's name. Amen. Well, good morning, everybody. Good to see you. Is it hot in here or am I having change of life issues? Okay, well, if someone could fix that somehow, it would be a blessing to a lot of us, wouldn't it? (laughs) All right, well, uh, some of you perhaps have been going through withdrawal since we took a temporary hiatus from our 1 Corinthians series back in June, and so we're going to give you a fix today. We're going to resume our study of 1 Corinthians, and uh, I think God's really been speaking to our church body through this letter. And we started exploring it together back in February. And I I fully expect God to continue speaking to us through it, especially as we get into these next sections, beginning with chapter 8, that are very provocative and very intriguing and even controversial. Perhaps, though, as you heard Pastor Claude reading that passage, you were deciding in your mind that you were going to check out early because you heard, you know, meat offered to idols. And you thought, you know, how does that have any bearing on my life whatsoever or on our culture? And... I'm hoping to convince you that it does have great bearing upon your life. So please stay tuned in, and uh, we'll see what God has for us. 
I want to start with a few questions for us to ponder, okay? Is it okay for a Christian to play the lottery? Is it okay for a Christian to play cards? How about to drink alcohol or go to bars or have a little wine with your dinner? Is it a sin to smoke cigarettes or to smoke cigars or to go to R-rated movies or to go to any movies? Is it a sin for a Christian to work on Sundays or play golf on Sundays or get a tattoo or get a body piercing somewhere on your body? So right now, find a person near you who looks interested in what we're talking about and share with them your opinion about these things, okay? (laughs) Do that. Go ahead. What's your opinion? Share it with somebody. (laughs) I didn't say show them your tattoos. Some of you shouldn't do that. (laughs) Here's another set of questions. Should all good Christians always vote Republican? Or Democrat? Or Tea Party? Speaking of tea, should all good Christians only eat natural, organic, unprocessed foods? My assistant is into health and eats things, and I'm telling you, there's this one thing that she brings into the office, and when I get out of my car in the parking lot, it reeks so badly. It's rancid stuff, and by the time I get into the office, you know, I'm kind of wading my way through this aroma, and I I say, you know, if that's what it takes to be healthy, count me out. I'll just keep with my mushroom Swiss burgers and whatever. Anyway, how about this? Should all truly godly Christian parents homeschool their children? Is it a sin to let your kids read Harry Potter books or see Harry Potter movies? Well, what I'm really asking is this. As Christians who love the gospel of Jesus Christ, how do we make God-pleasing, gospel-informed decisions in areas that the Bible doesn't specifically address? sometimes called gray areas. Now, we know there are some black and white things in the Bible, right? There are things the Bible says very clearly, this is right or wrong. Lying is always wrong. Thou shalt not lie. Stealing is always evil. Committing adultery is always wrong. Forgiving someone is always right. Doing an act of love towards your enemy is always a good thing and right thing. Being generous, always a good thing. But, you know, there are some activities that are not specifically addressed in the Bible. We call those gray areas. You will not find cigars mentioned specifically in the Bible or cigarettes. Although in the King James, in Genesis, it says Rachel lit off a camel. But that has nothing to do with smoking. (laughs) You won't find movies in the Bible or golfing or golf on Sunday, any of those things. As far as tattoos go... There is a kind of a remote reference in the book of Leviticus to not having marks on your body, but then you've got to decide if it's God's intention for his people in this era to observe all of the Levitical observances and regulations that you find in the book of Leviticus, or if that was for that era and that governed Jewish religious life. There's no mention of Republicans or Democrats or homeschooling or voting. These are all gray areas because the Bible does not specifically now address them. Now, 
Certainly there are biblical principles that are clear that we need to apply, we can and should apply to our decisions in these areas, but there's no specific mentions. We also know that we've been given freedom in Christ. Amen? We are not bound to religious rule-keeping. Jesus Christ came, he kept the law, he observed it perfectly, and then he absorbed in his own body, his own flesh, the punishment due lawbreakers like us. And we thank God that Christ has set us free from the curse of the law. He liberated his people from the demands of religious rule-keeping. He sets us free to enjoy him and to enjoy all of his gifts. 1 Timothy 6.17 So Christians possess freedom in gray areas. We're not governed by a list of rules that cover every possible area of life or every possible choice or decision that we face. And of course, we've been given a conscience to guide us and the Holy Spirit indwells us and the Word of God informs our conscience and so God has given us these to help us make decisions when it comes to gray areas. Now back in Paul's day, a very prominent gray area issue was this matter of eating meat that had been offered as a temple sacrifice to an idol. It was a very common practice. Now the people of that day believed that there were evil spirits everywhere in the atmosphere. And that those spirits, those evil spirits, sought to embody human beings. And in fact, they believed that these, these evil beings would alight on their food in hopes that as you ate the food, you would actually ingest evil spirits and become possessed. And so what those people would do of that day, would, they would take their food to the temple of one of their gods, and they had many, many, many gods, and they would lay that, that food, that meat out before their god, and pray that the God would clean all the demons off of their food, and then they would go home and eat it. And that was their belief system. And so Christians, sometimes, who, were in, who had lived in that pagan culture, grown up in that, and everything associated with, with temple worship, sometimes struggled with this matter of, ha- of having meat presented to them that they knew had been offered to a false god in a temple. And their conscience would say, this is not good, you should not eat that. The scriptures do not specifically forbid Christians from eating meat offered to idols. There's no chapter and verse on that. But again, people freshly saved out of that pagan culture, Christians now, some of them had a weak conscience, is what it's called, and struggled with being influenced to eat this meat. Maybe they would be invited to a friend's house for a dinner, or maybe to a wedding feast, which might have even been held in one of those temples. And this meat is set before them, and they're like, you know, I don't know if I should eat that. I know it was offered to a false god. Well, other Christians had no problem at all eating that meat. Their consciences were strong. They didn't accuse or condemn them at all. They didn't hesitate to eat meat when it was set before them, and they were even eating it in the presence of their weaker conscience, brothers and sisters, and that was a problem. It was causing a problem in this church in Corinth. Like with the other issues we've seen in that church, this was dividing people. It was pulling them apart. You had the weaker believers who were being emboldened by the example of the others to go ahead and eat this meat that had been offered to idols, and their conscience was condemning them, and then they were getting angry and upset with these other Christians who were leading them into sin. And then you had the stronger Christians say, you know what, we can eat anything we want, whenever we want, with whomever we want. Our conscience is clear, and you need to get over it. Stop being so sensitive and stop judging us. And so it became so heated that in a letter to Paul, 
the apostle, the spiritual shepherd, this matter was brought up to him. And so in chapter 8, he's responding back now to the letter that they sent. And from his response, we gather that it was the stronger believers who in their letter to Paul were making their case. They were giving their rationale as to why they should be able to eat meat that had been offered to idols and why it shouldn't be a problem for the other members of the church. And to support their case, they made three points. And then Paul offers a counterpoint to each. So let's start with verse 1. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. Notice in the ESV, that's in quotes. And I do believe that he is quoting their letter. He's taking an excerpt from their letter, and he's, he's um, looking at that here. We know that you guys are saying all of us possess knowledge. That was their first point. Hey, Paul, we know some things now. We possess knowledge. We're saved. We're Christians now. We know that idols aren't anything. We know that we have freedom in Jesus Christ. We can do whatever we want. Notice Paul's counterpoint. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. So these believers who wanted to exercise their freedom were saying, hey, we we possess knowledge. We know that we have freedom in Christ. And Paul is saying, well, you know what? Knowledge is important, but love trumps knowledge. It's more important to act in loving ways towards your brothers and sisters than it is to flaunt your knowledge and feel superior to others. Now, Paul was not against knowledge. We know from his writings he was a fan of gaining the knowledge of God's word. I pray that you might be filled with the knowledge of God's will, he wrote to the Colossians. But in 1 Corinthians 13, the great love chapter, you might recall this, he wrote, Though I have all knowledge and understand all mysteries and don't have love, I'm what? Nothing. Nothing. So Paul's counterpoint is that knowledge is good, but love trumps knowledge. Knowledge, he says, without love leads to arrogance. Knowledge puffs up, love builds up. Would you say that with me? Knowledge puffs up, love builds up. Knowledge without love leads to arrogance, he's saying. You're just kind of full of yourselves. You're you're feeling superior to your weaker brothers and sisters, and this is not good. It was feeding that arrogant streak that this church already had. And then he says, it's very interesting in verse 2, he says, you know, you, you don't, If anyone imagines that he knows things, he doesn't yet know what he ought to know. Did you know that the more knowledge you get, the more humble you ought to be? Because the more that you know, the more you ought to realize how much you don't know. That's what he's saying. Those who possess true knowledge know that they don't know everything. And what he's saying to them, what he's implying is, you Corinthians apparently don't know that love trumps knowledge. And then he says, God knows all who truly love him, verse 3. Your knowledge is faulty, but God's knowledge is not faulty. God knows who really loves him and who really just loves themselves. So kind of a rebuke here. Well, now he's going to address their second point. Verse 4, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that, quote, an idol has no real existence and that, quote, there's no God but one. Again, I think he's pulling excerpts from their letter into his response here. And so these people were saying, look, okay, so this meat was offered to some stone statue in a temple somewhere. 
Idols aren't real. They have no real existence. We know that now that we're Christians. We know that now that we're saved. You know, that slab of rock that the meat was offered to can't do anything to the meat. So what's the big deal? That was their point. Verse 5. Paul's going to affirm that there is only one God. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, and of course they believed in hundreds of gods, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, that's a reference to human masters, yet for us, verse 6, for us Christians, there's only one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and there's only one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. I love this. What's he doing here? He's teaching theology. He's teaching this congregation about God. He's actually affirming their belief that there's really only one God and one Lord. One God, the Father, who is the source of all things, of our existence, and who is the end of all things. And one Lord, one human master, Jesus Christ, through whom we exist. He's saying Jesus is the only divine agent of our existence and the sustainer of our lives through whom we exist. Verse 7, though, however, not all possess this knowledge. Not everybody understands this, guys. Maybe you understand this. But some people have been, in, been steeped in the pagan culture for 10, 20, 50, you know, 30, 40 years. And this, this, you know, going into this temple and offering meat to idols, and remember all the immorality that took place as part of the temple worship and the temple prostitutes and all of that. And he's saying, look, they, they, they can't make the emotional connection yet, and you need to be aware of that. And so I think his counterpoint really is what he's saying here is that, look, not everybody's where you're at. And your choices affect other people's lives. Some, verse 7, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. It condemns them, it accuses them, they believe that they've sinned. Weakness here, having a weak conscience, it's not a bad thing. Their conscience was weak in the sense that it was tender and sensitive and soft in this area and not yet fully informed by the truth of the word of God. So when these weaker brothers and sisters were influenced to go ahead and eat this meat, all of a sudden their conscience would send off all kinds of warning buzzers and, and bells and whistles and say, this is wrong, this is not good, this is part of the old life, this is what you were rescued out of. Don't slide back into the old life. Let me say a word here about conscience. You know, your conscience is a great gift from God. You ought to listen to your conscience. Consciences can, can be formed and molded and shaped by the, the truth of the word of God, which is why we need to continually keep learning God's word so that it shapes our conscience. Your conscience is a gift from God. It's an internal warning device that you ignore to your own peril. So I I never recommend that someone go against their conscience because if you do something that's against your conscience, you're sinning against your own conscience. When you're being drawn back into what Jesus saved you out of, your conscience will set off an alarm. And so don't go against your conscience. God's given it to you for a reason. So he's saying, in your congregation of believers, there are some with a stronger conscience and some with a weaker conscience. You know, one of the um, downsides of having a weaker conscience in a certain area is that it can lead you to judge people 
who don't have those same conscientious objections to things. You know what I'm talking about? If you ever want to study this, there's a great parallel passage in Romans chapter 14. And in that passage, Paul tells weaker Christians to guard against judging their brothers who seem to have freedom in areas where they don't feel that they have freedom. Here's what he wrote, wrote, verse 3. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. Here's an illustration from from my life of how this works. Um, In my BC days before Christ, I was just a very self-absorbed, you've heard me say this before, self-focused, self-promoting kind of a person. And when Jesus ambushed me on a California highway 30 years ago, that is what he began to extricate me from, that self-promoting, self-serving mindset. It was what I was being saved out of. But even now, 30 years later, every once in a while when I'm driving around Columbus and I'll see a big, huge billboard advertising a church. And there on the billboard is the big face of the pastor. You know, like 12 feet in diameter, this huge face. You know what my first reaction is? What a self-promoting, self-serving jerk you are. Have your face up there like that. And then the Holy Spirit reminds me, you know what, Steve? That's what God saved you out of. It would be sin for you to do that. But you can't judge that guy. You don't know him. You don't know his heart. I'm his master, Jesus says. To his own master he will stand or fall. You can't just make a blanket judgment about someone who would have their face on a billboard. For you it would be sin, but maybe not for them. So stop judging. Just because you're weak in this area doesn't mean that that individual is. And actually, I've gotten the opportunity to meet some of those guys over the course of the past few years, and they're great guys who love Jesus. And so it's been instructive for me. I can't apply my area of weak conscience to everybody else, and neither can you. To their own master, they stand or fall. So the strong believers were saying, hey, we can eat anything. Idols aren't anything, so what if meat's been offered to them? They're not real, they can't do anything. And Paul says, hey, not everybody's where you're at. Remember that. Third point they were attempting to make with Paul, verse 8. Food will not commend us to God. We're no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. Again, I think he's drawing in an excerpt from their letter. He's, He's letting us know what they think. And basically what it's saying is, look, food doesn't matter. What we eat doesn't draw us closer to God or push us further away from God, so what's the big deal? Here's his counterpoint, verse 9. But take care that this right of yours, this right to exercise your freedom in Christ, does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. You might want to circle that word stumbling block. It's an important word. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, maybe there for a wedding feast, which was popular, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, you're so big on knowledge, this weak person is destroyed or ruined. The brother for whom Christ died. Circle that phrase. That's important. 
Verse 12, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. So they would say, hey, we can eat anything. Food doesn't matter. It doesn't draw us closer to God. It doesn't push us away from God. What's the big deal? Paul says, well, what you do, the choices you make, can have an adverse effect on other people. You can actually place a stumbling block in front of them that will cause them to trip and fall spiritually and sin against their own conscience and against Christ. And he's saying, when you do that, you've sinned. When you cause your brother to stumble. And so Paul's counterpoint, he would say, what you do can adversely affect others. And love limits liberty for the sake of others. That's why we're calling this sermon, Liberty Limiting Love. Let me just lay out the stumbling block principle for you. When my freedom to do something, I have freedom in Christ, right? When my freedom to do something influences you to do something that violates your conscience, I'm causing you to stumble spiritually, to trip and fall spiritually. And in so doing, I'm sinning against you and against Christ by failing to live out the implications of the gospel that I say I believe. Let me say that again. When my freedom influences you to do something that violates your conscience, I'm causing you to stumble. And in so doing, I'm sinning against you in Christ by failing to live out the implications of the gospel that I say I believe. You see, Paul is saying food is not the primary issue here. Love is. And he's saying your freedom in Christ is not even the primary issue here. Love is. I think about this a lot. Here's a scenario. Uh, just ponder this with me for a minute. Let's say you're driving down Hamilton Road or Morse, Morse Road some night, and you're driving by a bar, and lo and behold, you see me coming out of a bar, heading towards my vehicle in the parking lot, okay? What would your response be? Well, we have a large congregation. I think there would be a variety of different responses. Some of you would say, you know what? That guy ought to be fired immediately. Others of you might say, man, I feel a lot better now about my own bar hopping. Uh, (laughs) Pastor Steve goes to bars. Some of you might say, well, he was probably in there witnessing. He's probably in there evangelizing. Some others of you might just be shocked and perplexed and not know what to think. But I think there would be a few of you, at least a few of you, who might observe me coming out of a bar And have thoughts like this. Well, Pastor Steve, you know, portrays himself as someone who's trying to love God. And he apparently can go drinking and go to bars. And maybe I can too. Maybe maybe that wouldn't hurt my walk with Christ. And if you were influenced then to go into the bar scene. And if alcohol was part of your past. If alcohol was part of what you were rescued out of. And by my example, you were influenced and encouraged to go back in and start drinking again and get involved in that whole scene and thus sin against your own conscience. Guess what? I would be sinning against you by exercising my freedom to go into a bar. Does that make sense? It's a different way of thinking, I think, for some of us who are accustomed to just thinking about, you know, what I want to do and my freedom and what I have the right to do. And Paul is saying, you know what? You've been placed in a body of believers. 
And in that body, there are stronger Christians and weaker Christians. There are some who believe they can do lots of different things and have freedom in Christ, and there are others who, man, if they were influenced to do some of those things, they would feel guilty about it, and they'd be sinning against their own conscience. And should you not, if love trumps knowledge, should you not be willing to relinquish your rights to forego your freedoms for the sake of love? That's what he's saying. And notice this, don't miss it, I love this. This love that limits its own liberties is an outgrowth of an understanding of the gospel. And these are just the lenses I have on these days. Whenever I read the Bible, I'm looking for the gospel, I'm looking for it, I know it's in there. It's the gospel that should shape our gray area decisions. Do you see it? We have brothers, what does it say? For whom Christ died. You know what that is? That's the gospel. Jesus Christ died for our sins. And Paul's saying, let the gospel that you say you believe and embrace shape how you treat and relate to other people. It's gospel-informed, gospel-shaped, gospel-molded behavior and conduct that will result in loving your brothers and sisters. We've been placed in community with others, brothers and sisters for whom Christ died, to insensitively engage in a gray area activity with no thought of our brother or sister's spiritual well-being is not in alignment with the gospel that we say we believe. You see, it was Paul's regular practice to tie every one of his instructions back to Jesus Christ died for our sins. So the important question for us to ask before participating in a gray area activity is this. Are there any Christians in my sphere of influence, little ones in my home who watch me, take their cues from me, or in my ministry team, or in my small group, or a spiritual partner? Are there any other believers in my sphere of influence who might be tripped up spiritually if they saw or knew that I was doing this? Could my participating in this activity become a stumbling block to a weaker brother or a weaker sister, resulting in them violating their own conscience and being drawn away from closeness to Jesus Christ? And if the answer is yes, then the loving thing for me to do would be to limit my liberty, forego my freedom, relinquish my right to do it in the name of love. Because love is the greatest thing. And so here's the bottom line of application. And it's also a memory verse. I'd like to reintroduce the practice of having a memory verse each week. It's Paul's resolution. It's contained in verse 13. Therefore, he wrote, If food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Would you say that verse aloud with me? Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble... I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Do you hear this? It's a vow. He's making a gospel-prompted, love-driven vow to limit his liberty for the sake of loving his brothers and sisters. I will not eat meat, which I can do. I have total freedom to do it if it's going to end up causing a brother or sister to stumble. Have you ever made that vow?
before the Lord? Lord, I want my choices to be governed by the law of love. And so if you show me there's something I'm doing or intend to do that's going to cause somebody else to trip and fall and stumble and lose ground spiritually, then I relinquish my freedom and right to do that. I want love to rule. See, I think what Paul is saying here is that when it comes to gray areas, we who love Jesus must not go the route of legalism on the one extreme or license on the other. You know what these terms are, right? Legalism, you know what that is? That's living according to a set of rules. Just, you just have a list of rules that governs, er, governs every possible choice you could ever make in your life. You're a legalist. You're living by those rules and you're thinking, if I can keep those rules, then I'll be a good Christian and God will be happy with me. On the other extreme is license, which says, you know what? I can do anything. I don't have any rules that govern my gray area choices. And Paul says, look, don't opt for legalism. Don't opt for license. Opt for love. Liberty limiting love. That's how to live your life. Well, as I like to do, let's take a few moments and apply this to us, to this body of believers, to New Life Church. Closed circuit for those of us who call New Life our church. Let me, let me give you a couple of application points here. One, I would challenge you to do what I've been doing and Develop a gospel instinct. I I do. I think it's an instinct that can be cultivated. The ability to see and find the gospel in Scripture and see how the gospel informs and shapes conduct and behavior because it's all over the place if you have eyes to see. This gospel, this message that is to be our primary message that Paul said is of first importance to Christians. Develop a gospel instinct instinct. And then let's talk for a moment about what are the gray area issues in our setting where this principle of the weaker brother applies or the principle of no stumbling block. And this is not an exhaustive exploration, but a sampling of things that I see among us that I think intersect what we're talking about today. Let's talk about drinking alcohol. Does the Bible, black and white, crystal clear, forbid Christians to drink alcohol? Yes or no? No, it really doesn't. What it does forbid is getting drunk, being under the control, being inebriated. Paul wrote in Ephesians 5, Do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Don't let some substance that you ingest control you. Let the Holy Spirit control you. Be a spirit controlled person. So in Christ, we are free to have a drink. And many of you exercise that freedom. You have a beer now and then or some wine with a meal. We don't have a published written stance on this as a church. There's no position paper that you can go look up and find out the stance of New Life Church. You need to develop a conviction in your own heart about this issue and live by it and not go against your conscience. But you know, just because we can do something doesn't mean that we should. Let me say that again. Just because you can do something, you have the freedom to do it, doesn't mean that you should. That was Paul's whole point. And so, we need to ask the weaker brother question. Let's apply the principle of no stumbling blocks 
to this issue. You need to ask yourself, are there people in my life who take their cues from me, who look to me as an example, or who should be able to look to me as an example? Am I leading anybody? Is there anybody in my sphere who might be caused to stumble in their own life or walk because of my drinking alcohol? So you're in a small group or hosting a small group or leading a small group and you have some people in that group who are, have an addiction background and they're trying to get freed up out of that and you say, you know, next Wednesday night for our social afterwards, we're going to break out the bud, you know, and just... I think Paul would apply the law of liberty-limiting love this way. Therefore, if drinking alcohol makes my brother stumble, I will never drink alcohol lest I make my brother stumble. Let's talk about movies. You know, there's absolutely no mention in the Bible of movies. They didn't have them. So Inception is not in the Bible. Toy Story 3, not in the Bible. In fact, entertainment is noticeably conspicuous in its absence in the Bible, which might be significant. So how about movie choices? Again, there are many principles that are found in Scripture that you and I should apply to guide us in what we choose to view, what we choose to watch. But let's just focus on this no stumbling block principle. You need to ask some questions. Who is influenced by me? Are there movies I should not go see because someone in my life might be influenced to go see it and likely will sin against their own conscience by seeing it because of the content in the movie? Someone who's going to get pulled back into their old life. Would it be a loving thing for me to do to just go ahead and do that when it might cause a brother or sister to stumble? What about your children? If they knew what you viewed, and they probably do, would they be encouraged to drop their guard and want to see it too? I think Paul would say, therefore, if seeing certain movies makes my brother stumble, I won't go see those movies lest I make my brother stumble. Again, gray area governed by the law of liberty-limiting love. How about displays of affection? I'll be careful on this one. The gospel places us into a loving community of believers, right? And so the Bible says, love one another. Be kindly affectionate to one another, it says. It even says, greet one another with a holy kiss. So there's no law against showing affection. But what would the law of no stumbling blocks, how would that guide us? Did you know, ladies, Girls, that you can cause your brother to stumble by how open you are with your affection. And if you think that by saying that I'm nuts, you don't know men very well. And did you know, guys, you can cause your sister to stumble. You can stir up emotions and awaken desires and violate her conscience by the inappropriate affection you give her, even if she appears to want it. It's one thing to offer appropriate brotherly, sisterly affection. It's quite another thing, isn't it? To drape your body all over another person, press your bodies together, stir up sexual excitement that was not meant to be stirred up, was not meant to be awakened, has no righteous outlet or fulfillment. Is that truly 
being loving to a brother or sister. Ironically, it looks loving, but it's not when it goes that far. And since I've already stepped in it, let me go to another area. Dress. Yes, you are free in Christ to dress however you want, within the bounds of modesty. But some of you have a definition of modesty that is so broad, it encompasses everything. Anything goes. Girls, if you find most men staring at your anatomy, certain parts of your anatomy all the time, if you find that most men are doing that, you might want to stop and ask yourself, is what I'm wearing contributing to that? Am I drawing attention, unwittingly perhaps, to my body instead of to my countenance, which is where attention ought to be drawn, by the way I dress? Now, I'm not trying to be legalistic here. I'm just trying to apply the no stumbling block principle, okay? And there are some guys who are going to stare at your body no matter what you wear because they're consumed by lust and they don't care. But you do have Christian brothers who, if they are truly your Christian brothers, want to stay pure in heart and mind, want to keep their eyes from roving, and you can help your brothers out by covering up that which ought to be covered up. I know the fashion industry is not helping you out here these days. But let me say this to you. You do not have to take your cues from the fashion industry. You don't. You march to the beat of a different drummer. He's your Lord and Master, right? And he says, love your brothers. Don't put an occasion for stumbling right in front of their eyes. And so maybe Paul would write it, the no stumbling block principle this way. Therefore, if dressing immodestly or provocatively makes my brother stumble, I will never dress provocatively lest I make my brother stumble. You know, when Jesus taught us to love one another and when he prayed that we would be one, this is part of what he meant. Let your love for your brothers and sisters manifest itself in limiting your liberty so as not to cause them to stumble. So they won't violate their conscience and be pulled back into the old life and sin against their Savior. Jesus Christ died for our sins to free us from sin. Why would you do something that would lead a brother or sister back into that sin that they've been set free from? That's not love. Basically what he's saying is it's not just about me and my freedom and what I have a right to do. I'm part of a body that's been formed by the gospel. How I make my gray area decisions should be governed in part by my love for you and my love for your spiritual progress and your spiritual well-being and your walk with Jesus. That's the law of liberty limiting love. That's what we're called to. Well, would you bow your heads with me? And these next few moments have been planned to be really just God time for you and for me. That we could respond to the word of God. I believe that God speaks to us through his word, don't you? 
And his spirit right now is taking his word and applying it to your life. And I'm just curious with your heads about how many of you would lift your hand and say, God's talking to me about something that relates to what I heard in the word today. Would you lift your hands? Yeah, amen, many of you. Well, you know, you can put your hands down. We, um, we need to respond to what God's saying to us. In these next few moments, several things are going to take place. First off, we're going to have our brother's keeper prayer time. And so in a moment, you can just lift your hand high if you came in today with a need, with a burden, with a decision you're facing or a situation, and you'd like some brothers and sisters to gather around you and support you and pray for you. In just a few moments, you can do that. And that will happen. I'm also going to ask some of our pastors and ministry staff and small group leaders, maybe two or three on each side, to come up and stand in these uh, corners. And some of you, God's talking to you, and you need to respond by telling somebody what God is saying to you and how you're going to respond to him. Maybe you need to make that vow that Paul made. If doing something causes a brother or sister to stumble, I will not do it. Maybe you need to walk up to a to Pastor Brian or, or Bill or one of our leaders and just say, I'm making that vow today by the grace of God and they will pray with you. Maybe you need to confess that you've been led into sin and you want to repent and be forgiven by the Lord. Come and let one of our pastors or leaders pray with you. Maybe you want to confess a lack of love for other people. Maybe you want to share a victory in this area that God's given you. Or maybe you want to be just receive prayer to be strengthened. Our worship team is going to be leading us in some songs and maybe where you're at today is you just need to worship Jesus. Your response is grateful worship from a heart full of God.